0: Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we step into your presence this morning, we are aware of our need to learn how to pray. So Father, I ask that you would teach us this morning through your word how to pray. And Father we uh, we think about the many churches in this area that are meeting this morning. Father, our brothers and sisters are hearing your word preached. Father, we want to see the gospel preached from every pulpit in this city. So Father, we ask that you would do that work in the hearts of the preachers and in the hearts of your people here in the city of Vancouver. Father, we specifically lift up our brother, uh, Pastor Brian Winchester, and our brother, David Brashler, Father, at uh, Saving Grace Church, Father, we pray for their work there, Father, as they shepherd and lead your people, Father, we pray that you would give them wisdom, and Father, this morning, as your word is preached, Father, we ask that that it would be preached with boldness and with power, so Father, uh, we pray the same for our gathering here this morning. Father, I pray that you would grant me a level of boldness. I pray that you would still my troubled soul. Father, I pray that you would keep me from error. Father, we, uh, we want to learn from you. And so please teach us to pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Yesterday was the birthday of Saint Augustine. He turned 1,667. So the fact that we're a day late to the celebration shouldn't concern us much. In the year 391, Augustine visited Hippo Regis. That's a Roman city on the coast of modern-day Algeria in North Africa. The people seized Augustine, and against his will, he was ordained priest. Now, I'm not sure how that works, but we do know that he served there in Hippo for the next 39 years until his death in 430. Shortly after he was made bishop, Augustine wrote his classic work, Confessions. It is his autobiography. It is his autobiography of a sort, and it's written in the form of a prayer to God. In the book, Augustine made a heart-probing analysis of his sins. And his sins ranged from gluttony to falling prey to false teaching to the sexual sins to which he was enslaved for years. But the most intriguing of his sins, in my opinion was one that most of us would find trivial. It involved the theft of pears from a neighbor's tree. Augustine was 16 years old at this time. And listen to him in his book as he searches his heart, as he describes his sin, and then confesses to God why he did it. I wanted to steal, he wrote. And I did it compelled by no want. That is, he wasn't hungry, and he wasn't poor. I stole what I already have possessed in abundance, and of much better quality. Nor did I even desire to enjoy the pears. I wanted to enjoy the very act of stealing, the sin itself. There was a pear tree near our vineyard, which was laden with fruit, that was attractive neither in appearance nor in taste, so it wasn't even... Good fruit. In the dead of night, we crept up to the tree, a gang of youthful good for nothings, to shake it down and despoil it. We carried away huge loads, not as a treat for ourselves, but just to throw to the pigs. Of course, we did eat a few, but we only did so to be doing something which would be pleasant because it was forbidden. Look at my heart, O God, look at my heart, may it tell thee now what it sought in this crime. It sought that I might be evil without any real reward, and that for my evil there might be no reason at all except evil. No excuse, no reason for his crime, just evil. And if that wasn't blunt enough, listen to this. It was filthy, and I loved it. I loved my own destruction. I loved my own fault. Not the object to which I directed my faulty action, but my fault itself was what I loved. Well, that view of sin is something we need to recover Our hearts have become so desensitized and so calloused to sin that we no longer find it filthy. And we no longer are willing to admit to ourselves or to God that we actually love it. And here's the connection to this morning's passage. Because we have such a low view of our sin, or I should say, such a low view of the God against whom we sin. We honestly don't feel the need to pray this prayer. We don't have a sense that we need to beg the Father to deliver us from evil. We hardly know what it means to pray this prayer. To mouth these words without understanding our sin simply exposes our hypocrisy because we really don't want to be spared from temptation. Our sin is filthy. And we rather love it. Let's keep that in sight this morning as we learn about the final petition in the Lord's Prayer. I think this is the eighth sermon now on the prayer. And each week we've tried to take a look back, a quick look back at the path we've traveled. Sort of a recap. I'll do the same this morning, but I want to do it a little differently. I found this in reading Charles Spurgeon this past week. It's interesting Spurgeon says that he found it while he was reading uh, but he doesn't tell us where he found it but he felt like he wanted to share it to his congregation and I want to do the same it's just a simple list of headings one for the address of the prayer and then one for each of the six petitions of the prayer it views the prayer like a ladder and on the top rung we have the address our father which art in heaven This is the prayer of a child away from home. Hallowed be thy name, the first of the six petitions. This is the prayer of a worshiper. Thy kingdom come, second petition. This is the prayer of a subject of the king. Thy will be done as it is in heaven is the prayer of a servant. Give us this day our daily bread, is the prayer of a beggar. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, is the prayer of a sinner. And this morning's petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is too a prayer of a sinner. But a sinner in danger of being a greater sinner still. This is the Lord's prayer. The prayer of a child away from home. The prayer of a worshiper, the subject of a king, a servant, a beggar, a sinner, and a sinner in danger of becoming a greater sinner still. That is who we are, and that is the Lord's Prayer. In verse 13, we come to our sixth and final petition in the Lord's Prayer. It is the only petition that Jesus puts in the negative. The others plead with our Father to do something or to grant something to us, to make his name revered as holy, to give us daily bread or to forgive us our debts. Here, though, we ask him not to do something, not to lead us into temptation. The petition is twofold. The first part is negative and the second is positive, but there is a single subject that we not sin that our father keep us away from evil negatively and that he deliver us from evil positively and notice the flow from petition 5 which Josh preached on last week to this petition it moves from the past into the future forgive us father for our sin committed in the past and lead us not into future temptation as we must be careful said the Puritan William Perkins, to beg mercy and pardon for our sins already past. So we must be watchful to prevent sins to come. He that says forgive us our trespasses must also pray not to be led into temptation. The sinner whose evil in the past has been forgiven, says John Stott, he longs to be delivered from its tyranny in the future. King David in Psalm 19 put it like this Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Those are the past sins of which I am unaware. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, future, and let them not have dominion over me. To understand this petition, let's try to answer three simple questions. One, what is temptation? Two, In what sense does God, in what sense, if any, does God lead us into temptation? And three, what does it mean to be delivered from evil? What is temptation? The word here for temptation in the original language is basically neutral. It's neither good nor bad. But because of how we use it in English, we typically view it negatively. We view it as an inducement to do what is evil. But the root of the word is more about testing and proving, which is why we also see it translated as trial or testing. Like when the Apostle Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. There's the word and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews." The word trial there is the same word translated temptation, not only in the Lord's Prayer, but in other places in the New Testament, such as 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the famous passage on temptation. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation, same word, but will with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Temptation then, if we put a definition to it, is this. It is the attempt to learn the nature or character of something, to test or to try to prove it, or to entice or lure someone to do something wrong to tempt or to seduce to sin and temptation always offers the promise of pleasure or gain if it didn't we wouldn't find it tempting and i see within temptation two phases and these happen prior to and this is difficult language is difficult here these two phases happen prior to the commission or the act of sin the suggestion and the desire. The suggestion to sin is not necessarily sinful. Though if the suggestion comes from within, that is from within our flesh, it could be simple, uh, sinful because it could arise from our evil desires. These suggestions or triggers, if you will, come at us from all directions. They come from within and they come from Without. They come from our flesh. They come from the world around us and they come from the devil. Luther called that the whisperings of the devil. These sin-suggested acts then lead to desire. So sin-suggested then leads to desire. Not all desire, though, is sinful. So in the phase two we may experience a struggle between desiring what is good and desiring what is evil. And this struggle, though, is unique to us believers in this life. The unbeliever may struggle with desire, but his will always be a desire between competing evils. For the unbeliever cannot will what is truly good. You see, the glory of his creator is never the object of the unbeliever's desire Every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. If I were diagramming this, I'd draw temptation as a bar divided into two parts, with suggestion on the left and desire on the right. And then I would divide the desire side into good desire and evil or sinful desire. And the line between good and evil desire I would label conception which I get from the Apostle James, who I'll read in a moment. So the suggestion to sin could lead to good desire, hatred of sin, a longing for God's grace, a desire to flee the evil suggestion, and so on. But it can also lead to evil desire, which is sin. That is why we normally sin before we actually commit or omit the sin itself. The adulterer toys with it. He toys with the suggestion of the affair before he commits the physical act. He desires the evil before he does the evil. The idea of stealing pears entered Augustine's mind. This led to his desire to steal for the pleasure of stealing, which was sinful even before he committed the theft. James describes the transition from sinful desire and follows it to its conclusion, which is death. Blessed is the man, wrote James, who remains steadfast under trial. That's the same word, temptation or trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. We'll come back to that. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, now it becomes evil desire, that midpoint of phase two. When it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. James 1. Eve in the Garden of Eden is the most infamous example. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, here comes the suggestion, the devil's whispering. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, And that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Again, there's the offer of gain and pleasure. She took the fruit and ate it. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. So this week in your community groups, you can debate this question. At what point did Eve sin? Was it when she took the fruit and ate or was it when she found it desirable, believing the word of Satan over the word of God? That would be a fun discussion. So question one was this. What is temptation? Answer, temptation is the attempt to learn the nature or character of something, to test, to try or to prove, or to entice or lure someone to do something wrong, to tempt or seduce, to sin. It always offers the promise of pleasure or gain. And we see two phases of temptation, the suggestion and the desire. The desire can be either good or evil. So now for question two. In what sense, if any, does God lead us into temptation? And this objection comes directly from the passage in James, which we read a moment ago. Let no one say when he's being tempted... I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So if God doesn't tempt, then how could he lead someone into temptation? And if he doesn't lead them into temptation, why did Jesus teach us to pray for something that he would never actually do? Those are fair questions. Two things. First, God does not tempt like the devil tempts. The tempting of the devil and the testing of our father are as different as night is from day. They differ in motive and they differ in objective. The motive of the devil in tempting us is evil. He wants to seduce us to sin. And his objective is to cause us to fall and to destroy us. So the apostle Peter warns us to be watchful because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5. In contrast, though, God's motive in testing his children is always good and righteous, as is all that our God does. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules, Psalm 119. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness, You have afflicted me, Psalm 119. The afflictions are the testings, and they are good. Not only is God's motive good and righteous, but his objective is as well. God's objective in testing his children is to purify them and sanctify them, to grow them into maturity. That's why James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, these are all the same word, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, that is mature, lacking in nothing, James 1. And it's why the author of the book of Hebrews taught us that God disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share in his holiness, Hebrews 12. So no, God does not tempt like the devil tempts. The motive of the devil is evil, and his objective is to lure you into sin and to destroy you. Far be it from God to be accused of such a thing. God does, however, test his children. And at times he tests them severely. He tested Abraham by ordering him to sacrifice his son Isaac he tested the children of Israel in the desert for 40 years. But God's testing is always motivated by what is righteous and good. And his objective in testing his children is always their holiness. So second, notice the language that is used in the Lord's Prayer and the language that James uses. They're different. The passage in James says that God himself tempts no one. Our prayer is that God will not lead us into temptation. And many scholars interpret that as lead us not into the way of temptation or into a time of testing or lead us not into the place of testing, which is how R.C. Sproul took it. He said that Jesus is teaching us to pray. The Father will never put us in a place where we will have to undergo a severe test of our faith or obedience. This distinction can be seen in the most famous of temptations, Jesus in the wilderness. Here's how Matthew worded it. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God did lead his son into the place of testing, but the tempting was done by the devil. That's what we pray against. But we learn in the third petition that we always pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done. So we pray against temptation. We pray against testing. And yet we pray according to God's will. Here's how Jonathan Edwards dealt with this question. So he took the phrase, and lead us not into temptation. And he said, that is, trials brought upon us by God's providential hand. Edwards makes no excuses. He takes it head on. These trials are brought upon us by God's providential hand, as well as the temptations of lust. God often leads his children into these, and always for their good. But we are to pray against it with submission to God's will, because simply considered, it is an evil. So question number two is this. In what sense, if any, does God lead us into temptation? The clearest, most concise answer, in my opinion, came from the pen of the 19th century Scottish Baptist minister, Alexander McLaren. He pulled everything I just said and put it into a nice little paragraph. To tempt is to present inducements to sin. But a secondary significance is to do so maliciously. That's the evil motive. And with desire that we should fall. That's the objective. I used the word destroy earlier. It is in this secondary sense that James denies that God tempts any man. We tempt ourselves, or evil tempts us. But God does tempt us insofar as he presents outward circumstances which become occasions of falling or standing. He sends temptations. He sends trials, and the two differ only in name and in what is implied in the word and the motive of the one sending it. Christ was led into the wilderness by the spirit to be tempted, and here's the memorable quote. If God does not in malice tempt, still he does in mercy try. That's try as a test. God sends trials. We make them into temptations. If God does not in malice tempt. Still he does in mercy try. Question number three. What does it mean then. For us to be delivered from evil. In the original. The word evil. Evil includes a definite article, so it's the. So it could mean, deliver us from the evil one, like Jesus prayed in John 17, which by the way is Jesus' prayer for his disciples. Truly the Lord's Prayer, unlike what we're studying now, which is actually the disciples' prayer. I do not ask, this is Jesus praying to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, John 17. Edwards was certain that uh, this part of the petition of the Lord's Prayer was a prayer for deliverance from the evil one. That's exactly how it's translated in many English versions, including the New International Version. D.A. Carson agrees. Thus, the Lord's model prayer, he wrote, ends with a petition That while implicitly recognizing our own helplessness before the devil, whom Jesus alone could vanquish as he proved in the wilderness, petition delights to trust the heavenly father for deliverance from the devil's strength and from his wiles. So deliver us from evil means to plead with God to deliver us from the power of the devil, from his whisperings as Luther said, and from his schemes that are meant to capture us and to destroy us. In closing, let me do something a little bit different. Normally, I I try to press home uh, a handful of applications from the text. But this morning, I I would just like to share with you what the Lord showed me this week as I meditated on this verse. You're smart. You can... uh, figure out how to pray this and how to apply it as well. As I meditated on this petition and read the meditations of the Dutch theologian that I quote all the time, Wilhelmus Sabrakel, I found myself increasingly disturbed. Not about the interpretation of the passage. That's relatively straightforward. The application to my heart is what disturbed me. This petition exposed me in a way that I was not expecting. And I began to question whether I had ever sincerely prayed this prayer. And I say that for several reasons. But first, because to pray this prayer sincerely is to admit, one, the sinfulness of my heart, and two, my inability to resist Temptation. You see, my sin is filthy. And I love it. And that disturbs me because I still feel that way at times. The corrupt old self still clings to this new man. If I had a sense of the depth of the foulness of my sin. And a high view of our thrice holy God. I would be broken and appalled that I care so little about my future exposure to temptation and sin. If I did care, this would be my daily prayer. Father, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. But it's not. If I truly understood my inability, that apart from divine grace, I could not resist temptation. I would pray daily, Father, lead me not into temptation, but I don't. And I know that it's ridiculous, but I sometimes think I've got this godliness thing figured out. I would never say it that way, but sometimes I behave like I believe that. Father, awaken me to the reality. That I would fall in a flash if you removed your hand of grace from me. Strengthen me and sustain me by your grace, Father. Number two, to pray this petition sincerely is to have a complete hatred for sin and a dread of falling back into it. As I said, my sins are filthy and I love some of them. But if I were to find myself in the presence of the Lord of hosts, as the prophet Isaiah did, I would cry out with him, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If I were to feel the weight, one ten thousandth of the weight of my offense, Against the Almighty, I would pray hourly, Father, lead me not into temptation, but I don't. What's wrong with me? Why do I have so little holy horror at the thought of my sin? Listen to Spurgeon, how he framed this. This is a beautiful passage. The prayer before us springs from the shrinking of the soul at the first approach of the tempter. The footfall of the fiend falls on the startled ear of the timid penitent. He quivers like an aspen leaf and cries out, What? Is he coming again? And is it possible that I may fall again? And may I once more defile these garments with the loathsome, murderous sin which slew my Lord? Oh my God, this prayer seems to say, keep me from such a dire evil. Lead me, I pray thee, wherever you will. I, even through death's dark valley, but do not lead me into temptation, lest I fall and dishonor thee. The burned child. Dreads fire. He who once has been caught in the steel trap carries the scars in his flesh and is horribly afraid of being caught and held again by its cruel teeth. Lead us, Father, not into temptation. Number three, to pray this prayer sincerely. Would be to acknowledge that my sweet communion with my Father is affected and obscured by my falling into sin, as is my love for the honor of his name. Does it mean so little to me? If my desire for close and intimate communion with my Father was my greatest joy, I would pray every minute, Father, Do you lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from this evil one? But I don't. Do I really believe that greater and lasting gain and pleasure or joy can exist anywhere outside my communion with you? No, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16. Number four, to pray this prayer sincerely would be to exercise faith in God's care for me as his child and in his unlimited power to give me strength to subdue my spiritual enemies that seek every moment to destroy me. And it would be to have faith in the goodness of my father that he will do it Since he promised to hear and to answer my prayer, why do I have such little faith? Well, lastly, let me leave you with a warning from Wilhelmus of Rockwell. You see, to pray this prayer sincerely is something that only believers can do. In fact, the unbeliever can pray none of the other six petitions, nor can he address God as his Father. You see, the unconverted, the unbeliever, has no desire for these things. Not only is he without desire for the matters that are comprehended in this petition, but all his desire and delight is to live in sin. He does not want sin to be extracted from him. Instead, he draws unrighteousness to himself with cords of vanity and sin as with heavy wagon ropes. He has no fear that he will fall into temptation. He even seeks it out eagerly and involves himself in it, for sinning is his delight as long as it doesn't result in harm or injury. When such a person therefore says to God, lead me not into temptation, he lies. And he lies in the presence of the all-knowing God and he mocks him. For if he would truly express what was in his heart, he would say, grant me opportunities to engage in many delightful and expedient sins. For they are my delight. Such a person ought no longer to pray this petition to God. Lest he tempt him. Instead he ought either to continue without prayer to his destruction. Or else repent. And then offer the petition. Lead us not into temptation. It's true. The believer cannot pray the Lord's prayer in any sincerity. That's a startling reality. To truly desire the petitions that we ask of God in this prayer requires a radical change of our heart. And that change comes when we place our trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the saving of our sinful souls. That's the ultimate deliverance from evil. And it occurred at the cross. And that's the gospel which we love and we preach here every week. And it's what we will celebrate in a few minutes in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we really don't know what it means to pray not to be led into temptation. Father, I, I fear that the remains in Me and many of my brothers and sisters, a love for filthy sin. Father, open our eyes. Show us how egregious our sin is. Father, I pray that you would awaken our consciences, awaken our hearts. Father, may your spirit convict us of sin. Father, may we run to the cross of your son Jesus to find ultimate deliverance from this evil that we are so encumbered with in this life. Father, do that miracle in our hearts I pray this in the name of your son Jesus and for his glory, amen.